Johnny Pounds. Welcome to episode two. Thanks everybody for listening to episode one. I had a great time connecting with Alex Kawakami and getting an inside scoop on his backstory, his current projects, and behind the scenes look at how he does what he does. I got a lot of great feedback on the first show. A lot of surprise listeners that I hadn't really expected to tune in who really enjoyed it and reached out to let me know. Super cool. I'd love to hear from you too, so please head over to johnnypounds.com and hit the contact form and or the social links to weigh in. All comments, questions, concerns, and donations are welcome. Uh, good or bad, definitely. The show is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Please subscribe and let me know if you consume your podcasts elsewhere in case I should make the show available some other place as well. Sat down with several more guests since the Alex show, and I'm pumped to share those too. I'm still streamlining my process, so thanks for your patience. I also put together a new spot for our newest sponsor, Marcus Landsberg, at the Landsberg Law Office. I hope you like it. If you have something that you'd like to promote, please get in touch and we'll get you hooked up. A couple weeks ago, I hooked up with my buddy Johnny Helm on Wilhelmina Rise, and we had a great visit over coffee on a beautiful day with a beautiful view. He's hilarious, wise, and incredibly talented. I love hanging with him. He's a treasure. You'll see. So thanks for checking out episode two, and uh, this is the Johnny Bounds Show. Hey, it's Jamie Winpenny. You're listening to Johnny Pound's podcast. Consideration is brought to you by Improv Hawaii, improv and sketch comedy in Honolulu, featuring comedy shows and classes at Arts at Marks in Chinatown and Kailua Onstage Arts in Kailua. All levels are welcome. Visit improvhawaii.com for more information. They make shit up. If you find yourself in trouble with the police or needing help with the TRO, call our friend Marcus Landsberg in the Landsberg Law Office for help with any court matter. This is the Johnny Pounds Show. I'm in Wilhelmina. The Rise in Honolulu with the infamous, no, not infamous, but the prolific, I said that last time, you are prolific though, the legendary hero, Johnny Helm. Wow, that's, that's intense and uh, robust and flavorful and I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> You're also robust, so I appreciate that. <sighs> yeah, uh, well, we, we are on a hill. It's we true. definitely on a hill. There's a beautiful view and... Well, we, we might as well give those that are listening because you cannot see, we will tell you that we are looking straight in to Diamond Head from the backside, looking at the ocean, which we're above Diamond Head. So it's kind of a cool view from up here. It's very unique to see inside Diamond Head from the top. Yeah, yeah. we're just approaching 11 a.m. on a Saturday morning, and uh, I've uh, reduced my coffee intake this year. <laughs> this is my seventh cup of coffee in 2017. So Why? This is going to get me going. Because I was just, it's a slippery slope, you know. It's like you start with a small one, and then, you know, you have a, a late gig and an early golf session. And so you get a big one. And then you get used to getting the big one. And then 
you're on the way home and you're like, oh, they give you free refills, so let's get another one. And next thing you know, you're chugging 32 ounces of coffee and it's too much. I have to say that I am never going to slow down and I drink. Well, I was I offered you my Frankenstein cup of coffee and you refused it this morning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, I'm a, I'm a big coffee guy and uh, I shall pound coffee all day. <laughs> well, you also have um, personal and romantic connections to I coffee do, too. I do. Yeah. My wife owns a nice coffee shop down the, down the street. Just, but she doesn't let me drink her coffee because I drink too much of it. So she, I won't say where she buys me coffee, but she she buys me a cheaper brand. Let's just say that she <laughs> says, you can drink as much of this as you want, and uh, that's my Frankenstein coffee. But yeah, I make it good. I was a little surprised to see that can. That didn't seem like yeah. it was Johnny Helm grade. <laughs> that that's the uh, my wife is pissed off because I'm drinking too much of her coffee grade. So plus, I was reading that at one point when you were living in New York, you were working coffee shops out there, so you were semi professional coffee connoisseur. I, well, that's where I met my wife. I worked at her coffee shop first. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, I worked at Coffee Talk, 1997. I was brought in and I worked there probably on and off until 2002. Um. Between that and ra- I was in radio too, so I worked between there and radio. And then you took off shortly after that to go to New York. Went to New York for a year. Um, well, actually, I really didn't go to New York. I went to uh, West Hartford, Connecticut, and I did construction uh, with my buddy's construction company. So that's why you're so buff. Yeah, right. <laughs> they, I was the worst construction worker. <laughs> they would get so pissed at me. I, I, I had my job was to chain a pipe, a giant pipe, as they dropped it into the. Um, they dropped it into the uh, the street. You know, it was uh, sewage pipes. Oh, the and huge my, things. Huge things. My only job was to chain the pipe, uh, and then they would take a crane, you know, lift the pipe up, and, and I'd be off in La La Land. Helm! The pipe! The pipe! Get the pipe! <laughs> and I'd go and chain the pipe, and then I'd space out for another half hour. The pipe! God damn it! You know? It has to be perfectly you know, evenly spaced, too. It's right? got to be right in the middle or it tips over. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, so I was, yeah. Anyways. So I, that didn't last long, um, and then I moved to New York City, and tried to do the music thing, but I did get a job at a coffee shop on, uh, I think it was 72nd and Columbus. It was called Muffin's Cafe right next to a restaurant called The Peace. And I worked there for probably a couple months until I left the city. I didn't stay very long. But you were there long enough to record, was it a whole record or a demo or what was the deal? No, I recorded um, most of, I think, uh, my uh, album called Divide, which I started at Studio Kahala here, but I moved over there. So I, got, I brought the files with me and just did it on my computer. And um, yeah, I did a lot of the recording for that. And um, there's a song called Staring Up Trees on that album. I think you can get it on iTunes. And that's directly about uh, the area of the coffee shop in New York City. And I, I walked uh, these two dogs for rent. That's what I did. All I had to do is walk this girl's two dogs and I could live on our couch. Wow. Yeah. So um, the the song "Staring Up Trees" is about taking the dogs for a walk. It's in the park. Sweet. Yeah, yeah. I was checking out your CD baby earlier mm-hmm. um, to see what was new. Actually, the reason why I looked it up is because I was trying to recall exactly when I met you, which was at your Banyan Tree CD release party. Oh wow! That which was, <clears throat> was a suggestion um, by my friend Mickey Lee, who was helping with that I restaurant love group. Lee. I She's a wonderful person. I haven't seen her in a long time. And uh, so at the time, this is on Bethel Street, across from J.J. Dolan's, there was a place called Bamboo 2. Yep. And then right next door, there was um, another establishment adjacent that was called The Venue that was sort of um, 
a bigger kind of rock and roll performance space, but it was really echoey and it was never quite that fully That was the realized, old Red I Elephant. Think. It originally was called the Red, Red Elephant, I think. Yeah, which predated me, which apparently was an amazing it was very space cool. that was acoustically tuned and a lot of recordings happened there. I don't there know too. that it was acoustically tuned. Is I think that not right? And no, they were just very, they, they cared a lot about their, um, their gear and making sure the sound sounded good. I don't know that it was a big square box, so. Um, but they did have good gear, and they definitely knew what they were doing in terms of, um, you know, gear and sound. So they did a great job with their shows. I, I just don't think that people were ready for it because you know, they were charging, I think, at the time, which isn't a lot of money, twenty five bucks a ticket. Mm -hmm. And I think people just um, because there's so much live music here, they weren't accustomed to paying money, or at least that much, to go see a show. And that's a capacity, what one hundred, one fifty. Probably a hundred. Yeah. yeah, it was like they had folding chairs, but it, it was a very cool room. I mean, they did de they took some time to decorate it really, you know, in a very cool way, and it they presented the shows very well. But that, I think the attendance just it wasn't doing what they wanted it to do. Yeah, and I think originally their intention was to also make it a live recording room yeah. so that you could record your shows too. And if you have a big square echoey box, <clears> if it's not filled with people, then it's going to sound much worse. Yeah, I don't think the sound definitely wasn't a problem. I probably shouldn't have led down that road, but. Um, it definitely sounded good. I just think that, yeah, because I think people weren't ready to pay money, unfortunately, to see shows, which is sad because I think still people are not, um, the majority of people are not willing to do it. Yeah. And um, I think that takes away from having intimate little shows that people go to listen to the music for and they're not just going to drink beer and party behind you. So I don't know. Well, I like the idea at that scale, like a 100-person show, can be like a really fun time, and and if you're spending twenty five bucks, and, and forget about you know what the restaurant is contributing, and you know what the bar sales are, but say you just have twenty five dollars cash out mm -hmm. of it, right? You have fifteen hundred dollars to pay your band, right? Mm -hmm. So say you have a four piece or something, right? So sure. now they're making a few hundred bucks, so now they're they're putting on a good show, you know, they're rehearsing, they're hopefully dressing up, thinking about their lights. You have maybe five hundred bucks for a sound guy, five hundred bucks for a lighting guy, that can be a really good show rather than just like. You know, somebody sitting in a corner, unlit, you know, without really much drama to it. Yeah. I feel oh, like that sure. could be a good formula. It's in that way, if you're paying $25 for a show like that, you're getting a real show rather than, you know, maybe paying $10 at the door at a place that isn't lit, that doesn't sound great. You know, it's, it's, you get what you pay for, I think, if you do it right. I totally agree. There's a couple guys in town right now that are doing really cool stuff, I think, that are is similar to that, and they're trying to make it a show, which is Tavana, and I think um, Taimani. And I think Mike Love, oh my God, <clears throat> excuse me, are all doing. I think they're trying to at least, and I think they're succeeding actually, um, do more of a show rather than just a gig. And I think I just went and saw Tavana last night, and he put on a great show. It was awesome. So, and he has a standing. Uh, it's not Wednesday, but he has a standing gig over at Hawaiian Brian's, right? Hawaiian Brian's. I think his show is Tuesday, Tuesday. And, and Mike, Mike Love is Wednesday. Yeah, maybe Mike's Wednesday. He might have two nights actually. But you know, all three of those artists are really putting effort into having a show, and I think it's it's great because it's you know people are actually attending it and they're they're there to listen. Like last night, there was rows of chairs watching Tavana instead of people, you know, four people around a table having beers and then occasionally looking up to see this awesome music being played, they're actually watching him play, yeah. and he deserves it. He's fantastic. He's a hardworking guy, too. Yeah. I mean, he's yeah. going to... When you see him at a gig, he's probably on his way to another gig. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
super sweet too. It's interesting. Yeah, really nice guy. It was really interesting seeing him evolve into what he what he is out of his hand injury, and just like how devastating that is to a guitar player to cut your hand open when this is what is your livelihood. Yeah, he t- I didn't know that. He told me that the other day. He said I started playing slide because my hand got hurt and I couldn't do my gigs. So yeah. I just had to. So I thought that was very cool. And yeah, he started off. I mean, he was more of a gigging guy. Absolutely. I mean, he, and he still is, but now he's moving more into the shows, and I think it's fantastic. Well, just not having the experience on the slide guitar led to, oh, well, I need something. Okay, we'll put a kick drum here. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. These pedals can be digital, and we can add other things. And now he's got a whole array of different samples that he can trigger with his feet. So he's multitasking. He's a one-man band, but it's a really original take on it. Very cool. Yeah, I really like that guy. Um, also, in dealing with him really briefly professionally, he's just like the consummate professional. Like He's very sure. considerate and a good listener and prepared and flexible. And I think that's that's another big part, too. It's like you can be totally talented, totally original, but if you're tough to work with, then... No one wants to work with I'm you. I'm sorry, you're not yeah. going to get the gig. Mm. He's definitely great. Well, there are people that are hard to work with that still get the gigs. <laughs> but anyways... Yeah. We'll see how long that lasts. I um I caught the uh, the Mike Love show over at Hoy and Brian's maybe it was a couple months ago I was over at Gordon Beers checking out DeShannon Higa's Subtonic Orchestra, mm-hmm. which is uh, a masterclass in in musicality. I mean he he comes up with just incredible uh, arrangements of really you know challenging intellectually challenging and, and physically challenging music. And he was over there playing with uh, I think there's Robert a fine line on the intellectual challenge. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's you know he's playing stuff like Snarky Puppy, who is you know just kind of this funk uh, fusion band that you know plays things in odd time signatures and mm-hmm. you know subdivides things really interesting ways. And you know if you're if you're kind of a garage rocker like me, you know to be able to switch gears like that, it takes a little bit of a little bit of time. And even as a listener, sometimes whenever they're they're switching into like a something in seven, it's like oh wait, where's the one? You know, mm-hmm. it takes a it takes a little bit of. Uh, well, the th- that, I think what I was my point is those guys actually know what they're doing and they're doing it on purpose. There are guys that claim they know what they're doing and don't do it on purpose, <laughs> and it sounds like garbage. And you're just like, what the? Heck? Anyways, go on. Sorry. Yeah, so so check out so check out Shannon Higa's uh, Subtonic Orchestra when you can. They don't play that frequently, but when they do, it packs a punch. I, I didn't even. I have to go see him. I, lo- I love. Yeah. And and Gordon Beers is a great place to see a show because it's centrally located. It's easy to park. The food and drink is is good. It's you know, really pleasant outdoor atmosphere. They do a good job making it sound good. And it's like a raised stage with a drum riser. So you actually see people playing. And I really like that spot. Um, anyway, so uh, John ha- John Haas and uh, Reggie Padilla were sitting in on that. And you know, Reggie Padilla is just a phenomenal saxophone player and keyboardist and cameraman. His drone footage is unbelievable. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Definitely look that stuff up. It's incredible. <laughs> He's a master. <laughs> And so John and Reggie were going to play with Mike Love later that night over gotcha. at Hawaiian Brian's. I was wondering where the connection was because I thought we were at Hawaiian Brian's and then we went to, to uh, Gordon Beer. So you now see I how see, I'm bringing it all together? Okay. I'm a master at nice. this. I'm, okay. a, I'm a craftsman. Yeah. I'm not. But For those that don't know, Gordon Beer is a bar in, in downtown Honolulu on the water. And Hawaiian Brian's is more kind of in Waikiki. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, so we went from uh, anyway. So they were playing that show later, and they're like, "Hey, man, do you want to you want to come to the to the gig?" And I said, "Yeah, sure." I was already out seeing music. It's kind of on my way home because I'm in Manoa, and went over there, and and of course I'd seen Mike Love forever. Like since I moved here, I used to enjoy going to uh, Tropics when there used to be you know the Tropics Cafe right next to um, Buca de Beppo and uh, Dave and Buster's over there. It became real a gastro pub, but it used to be kind of a just a real casual kind of reggae bar. And, and Mike would play there. 
usually with uh, Dub Conscious, mm-hmm. his reggae band, and then he put together the Mike Love Band, sure. which was like kind of a super group to my mind. But they were all pretty kind of casual shows, and you know, there wasn't really lit or anything. It usually sounded pretty good. And then I show up at Hawaiian Brian's, and it is like a full blown rock show with like really good stage layout they've got a real you know everybody's visible everybody's well lit they've got all of the lights synchronized to all of the different sections of the songs and the songs are just feeding one into another it was a continuous show and it was just like wow this is like a legit professional like well put together well thought out well crafted performance it wasn't just like a gig in a bar it was a show. They had really thought about the fine details. And then they're all master musicians. And mm-hmm. those I mean, guys, whenever I see Mike Love, I want to just take my guitars and throw them in the garbage and run. Yeah. <laughs> the guy's such a stud. But it's just, it was really interesting just to see, you know, and he'll, and he'll play. I remember seeing him and Sam just doing duo gigs outside of Wahoo's Fish Tacos yeah, yeah. on Wahoo's Wednesdays. And then seeing this, which is like, it's a high class, world class production. Mm-hmm. Turns out that Lee manages them and he's the son of Glenn over at Hawaiian Brian. So of course he knows the ins and outs of running the lights and everything. Lee's a really nice guy. Is he he's managing Mike? Yeah. Oh I didn't know that. And so and so that's how he knows the repertoire so well. So very cool. He's a sweet kid, man. Really well, he's not a kid anymore. I mean he's he's a he's a man now. But um they're both really nice people. That's a great, great venue. Yeah, yeah. they really care about creating uh, an atmosphere pe- where people can excel and, and I, I would love to see more of that. Mm-hmm. You know, they they spend money making sure that the back line is good making sure that it's well lit, like it's well equipped. And, and uh, it's a good way to showcase artists. I, I love playing there because I know that they're going to make me sound good. I'm going to be able to hear myself. There's plenty of room is, to move around. Then Locke Lynch, is he the sound man over there? Is he uh, not always or sometimes? He, or? he, he was when I, originally, when I originally started working there. I think he's got a lot of other things going on. So there's been different guys working there. but Yeah, every time I've been there, regardless, I mean, the sound men have been very attentive and very good. Yeah, they yep. care about putting on a good show. Very and, cool. Uh, I really enjoy that. Um, yeah, so so so, uh, Hawaiian Brian's is one. What's another venue that you're you're appreciating what they're doing? Um, uh, caught me off guard there. I haven't been going out that much. I'm usually working every night, so I don't go out too much. But for live venues, hmm, I got to be honest with you, I don't know. I know I saw Tavana at the Hawaii, uh, the uh, Hyatt Centric the other night, which is. Really, just that they set it up so that you can can watch him in a show setting, but it's really outside next to a pool. So I don't, I wouldn't call that a music venue. Is that the Hyatt, the one that has kind of the atrium area inside? That's kind of like a little mall. It's on Seaside. If you take, if you're going down Kalakaua, and you oh, take, that's a different Hyatt then. Okay. Yep. Yep. You take a, a left on Seaside, and you're almost to Kuhio. It's on your right, on, on the very corner. There's, I think there's a there's a, I don't want to say it, the S word, Bucks uh, Coffee Shop. On the corner, and it's that that building there. So if you keep on going past Kuhio, there's like the sandbox there. No, no, no. Before Kuhio, before oh. be, be right, it's on the corner of uh, I think Seaside and Kuhio, right there. Oh, oh okay, Seaside yeah. and Kuhio. Okay, I'll have to check Anyways. that out. So <clears throat> Hyatt centric, cool. Yeah, and so uh, I don't know if anybody's listening and they're looking to uh, make an investment in live entertainment. My suggestion would be get a room that sounds and looks great, stream all that stuff, and mm-hmm. you get a bunch of artists at. Uh, are really talented, but otherwise kind of underrepresented. I'd love to see that happen. You're talking about just a room in someone's house. You're not talking about a venue. No, I'm talking about a venue. Oh, okay, okay. Right. And, and apparently, years ago, that that existed. Right. I, w- I was, you know, hearing about you know the space where next door in Bar Thirty Five is. Back in the day, was like insane jazz club, right? That got shut down due to litigation. But you know what? What replaced it? 
not much. So it'd be neat, neat to see something that really sounds good and looks good that, you know, I mean, the, the, the blue note can sound good, but who wants to deal with Waikiki all the time? Yeah. I mean, I'm cool with it. I'll spend six bucks to go, you know, park a block away and I'll see a lot of legendary artists, but it doesn't feel like, uh, I never feel like a regular there. Mm. It's a little too sterile for me. Well, it's not, st- no, it's a great place. I shouldn't say it's too sterile, but it doesn't feel like my living room. I understand what you're yeah. saying. I got you. It's not. It's not a homegrown place. It's it's more uh, commercialized, and it's it's like you know a it's a what do you call them mm-hmm. when uh, there's many of them instead of just one. Yeah, I forget what the word is. I'm looking for it's a, a chain. Or Thank you. Yeah. So it's not a mom and pop place. But I appreciate them very much. I mean, you know. yeah, they're doing very cool things for local artists, bringing in a lot of the local artists and giving them a chance to have a really cool show. Yeah. So yeah, and also introducing me to new global artists that are unbelievable that I didn't I hadn't really heard of. And also, like, you know, just getting to see Spyro Gyro is kind of a thrill. And, and uh, John, uh, not John McLaughlin, but uh, what's the other guy? Alda Miola. Um, I missed Schofield, but anyway. Um, yeah, so <laughs> it's funny how we got from uh, Bamboo 2 to Blue Note. You're probably so, going to have to cut a lot of this out. <laughs> no, I don't. Actually, really I just leave it. it. Okay. Some people find it fairly interesting. Other people just don't have to listen to it. So yeah. that's how we work. <laughs> They're probably like, these guys are a rambling. Yeah, I don't know. Anyways. I, I'm new. They don't expect much from me. Hey. You're doing um, a cool thing. Well, thanks, man. So, okay, so Bamboo 2, so I met you there, and uh, and, and Bamboo 2 was just kind of this little martini bar, and the stage wasn't really much other than kind of a ledge in front of a, in front of a glass window. But you were there with a, a guitarist and a percussionist. Salam Tillman was on percussion. Yeah. Um, Jason Nobrigo was on guitar. He's a, he's a monster. Yeah, he's a monster. And then Kylan Reese was on lap steel. Oh, Kylan, okay. Yeah. And I, I did I only met him probably maybe last year, yep. so I didn't make and then a connection. But he's an unbelievable. The too. legendary Vito Trulio was on bass, and he moved back to New Jersey. But he he played out here for a long time. I think he played with let's see, well, who did he play with? I know he played with John Cruz a minute. Um, he was with Jesse Colin Young, um, and I I want to say he might have played with Guy Cruz too. But just a super charismatic guy. Um, and a lot of fun to be around. And did those guys play on the record as well? On mm, on Banyan Tree, Vito might have played on some of my. St- I know Vito played on a track of mine. I don't know if it was on Banyan Tree. Um, Jason has played on my stuff before. Salam definitely has. Banyan Tree, jeez, I no, I don't think any of them played on it actually. Yeah, Jason was sitting in with the Bentos over at Manifest on First Friday. There's a great funk soul band that plays at Manifest on First Friday, and they play nice and early, so you can kind of catch two sets of them and then get out of Chinatown before it turns into a shit show. And, uh, and normally they have a keyboardist and a guitarist, and this time they had two guitarists. He was playing guitar, and Paul Nelson was playing guitar, and it was, uh, it was phenomenal. Yeah, he's a great, he's, a, he's an amazing player. I have half the time when he's playing, I'm not even listening to what I'm doing. I'm just blown by what, by what he's doing. Yeah, wh- He did play you? on Banyan Tree, coming back to that, going back. He did. He played on that. He did play on that one. And so that was released in 2012. Okay. And you worked on it for quite a while before you finally released it. Yeah, I usually do. I usually, I'm, you know, I don't like to let go of things, so I usually tweak them and tweak them and tweak them. I've, I started recording um, it because I got into radio, and so I was doing production, and that's how I really got into recording things. And there was a tape machine at um, Caribou Broadcasting, and uh, I I recorded my first demo on that thing, which was like a nine or eight or nine song demo on, um, on tape. And then we were also do, it was the beginning kind of, uh, of the 
where radio is going from the old school guys were still recording their commercials on tape and the new school guys were on computers. We're talking about mid-90s now. Yeah, mid-90s, mid to late for me. And so, you know, computers obviously had been in for a while, but I mean, people were more leaning towards computers and away from tape where there were still guys doing their splicing tape for their commercials. Well, those carts were a lot more reliable than like a Windows 95 machine. Right, right. No, I hear you. (laughs) Or a DOS, yeah. So I did kind of half-half with that project. It was kind of a hybrid hybrid digital analog project. And from that point on, I always kind of kept a home rig. But I would do like some things in the studio, and I wasn't totally comfortable completely taking on doing my own projects. So I would lean on a lot of people to do some of the stuff, and then I'd bring it home and mix it. And Banyan Tree was probably about the time that I finally started to complete. No, it's not true. I let go before then. But I really um, would tweak things to the point where it was almost sterile. And um, so, yeah, it takes me a long time to let go. And a long story short, I don't know how long I worked on Banyan Tree for. Probably a couple of years um, on and off. But that one also, Matt Honda had produced uh, the two. There's two tracks on there that are a little bit more polished sounding or a lot more polished sounding than the other ones. And those ones were done by Matt Honda. Which ones are those? Uh, light and fine. And they're more of a tracks know, three f- tracks, four and three. Respectively. Yeah. He's a, stu- he's a stud. I love his productions and he's very, very good. And, um, and he's, he's local here. He is, but I think he's in LA right now. He does work out of LA. Um, but he, um, he really gave that track a polish. And I started also on Banyan Tree, started to work with a guy named Jesse Siebenberg out of California. So I would send him my productions and he would put, like lay down a guitar or a lap steel or drums. He would have somebody do it or he did it himself? No, he does it himself. And so that was the beginning of working with him. And I, he would send it back and then I would mix it. How did you get hooked up with him? I was on a tour with John Cruz in, I don't remember, mid-2000 somewhere. I, he asked me to be his tour manager for a West Coast Swing. And John Cruz did, or John Cruz, yeah. And then this a fellow named Todd Hannigan, who um, is a producer and a um, composer for film, was on the opening act for John's show, and and Jesse w- was playing guitar with him. They own a studio out in California called Brethren Studios in Ojai, and um, they were the opening act for John. And I met Ojai. Jesse that's to, desert country, yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Actually, I've never been there. I'm just, okay. I'm just agreeing with you because I have no idea. All right. <laughs> I like your default. But but anyway, so he's a, he's a great multi-instrumentalist. So I really, uh, now I, I pretty much only work with um, him or Matt. That's nice now that you can just kind of stick your tracks up in you know some cloud storage and, and hand them off like that. I do. I like a lot of times, like my projects now, what I'll do is I'll pre-produce them. So I'll produce everything. I'll play the you know I'll play the drums, play everything on it. But my playing just isn't what I want as a studio musician. It's just it's good for ideas, and then I'll mix it, send it to Jesse, and he'll strip it and take what he wants and then replace the rest of it. And so the mechanics of that, what what is the file type? So these are you're going to send him multi-tracks so that he can manipulate the individual channels, right? Um, yeah, I send him multi-tracks. I mean, typically he'll use some of my guitars he likes. Um, usually my acoustic rhythm track he'll keep. I do a lot of keyboard work, which atmospheric stuff that sometimes he likes. But in general, he's replacing the bass. The drums. He's a drummer by trade, but he's an amazing guitar and player. And are you both using the same no. Uh, DAW? No. No, we just export and send. So you're exporting. So you're giving him like channel one, zero to the end, channel two, exactly. zero to the end. Yeah. He's a Pro Tools guy. 
I have Pro Tools, so I can. I only use it to if somebody sends me something in Pro Tools, and I can export it. And I, what's your I, What's well, your workstation of choice? I, my choice is Logic. Um, I started off on Cubase, and I really loved Cubase, but I just because I had the Mac, I just switched over to Logic, and now I'm just used to it, so I use it. In production, when I was in radio, I was using Saw Pro, and then I switched to S A W Saw. Yeah, Saw. It was really cool for more for editing than recording. Um, and then I switched over to, I think, Cool Edit, and then Audition, and, and now I've landed on Logic, and I'm just I kind of stick with that. I think if I had Cubase, I might like Cubase a little better, but I I I just it I just had Logic, so I just. I've just been using it. Now I'm used to it. And Cool Edit was kind of one of those shareware style programs, wasn't it? I think it started off as Cool Edit, and it might have turned into Audition. I don't know. It, it turned it. There was a it, which is it, Adobe, which is Adobe, and I, but I thought it would buy, bought by somebody else too. Anyways, Logic is what I'm using. To, long story short. Okay, so you so you create your project in Logic. You mm-hmm. get you know sort of if you're using keyboards, you're assigning to the patches, and then you're exporting audio files. So I export audio. Yeah, keyboards because because if I, he's going to keep them, then I just leave it. He usually likes what I've you know what the, the settings are. I tweak settings. I don't usually keep the stock settings. You know, I'll find something that I like, or I'll just create it from scratch. Are, are those individual exports? Are they like 48k, 24 bit? Usually, yeah, twenty four forty eight is usually what I record. And to be completely honest with you, I don't even know if I could tell the difference between 44 and 48 mm-hmm. in my brain. I mean, I, a lot of people say you can tell the difference. I could care less. It, yeah. so, you know. The times where it's most noticeable for me is like this little recorder that we're recording on now mm-hmm. um, can record 48, maybe even 96. But when I would do live recordings, mm-hmm. um, the times I would, because I, would, I, I bring this thing everywhere, like whenever I'm playing with a band, just you know, as kind of personal reference, I don't release it, but... The 48, I feel like I get more of the ambience of the room and it seems bigger. Mm-hmm. Like there's a f- f- deeper floor and a larger ceiling versus the the 44 feels like more compact. It just feels like I'm in a bigger space when I listen to it. You know, I used to be very strict. Like when I first got into it, I was like, I, I you know, at the time, I think I want to say Sawmar was only 16 bit and 24 or something like that. And I was like, oh, I got to get a higher bit rate and I got to get higher. And I wanted everything to be the highest. And I started recording at the highest rate. And then Later in life, I, I'd forget to set my project settings at a higher sample rate. And then I just said, you know what? I can't even tell the difference. Yeah. I was worrying about stuff that didn't matter. I think the p- things that matter in those recordings are you d- get a good performance, get a decent microphone, get a decent recording with good levels, and don't worry about the rest of it. Yeah, The content and the immediacy trumps the quality, I think, in most cases. Just as long as it's not distracting, I guess. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, obviously, if it sounds like garbage, because, but I, I, I really can't tell the difference, so anyways. So Banyan Tree is now five, six years ago. Mm-hmm. What's been going on since then? I did another record called uh, For You, and that one was the, I did that one uh, with Jesse. Uh, That's also on CD Baby, I saw. Yeah, and that one I did, I released it in June. I think I made three Facebook posts about it. I used to try to Whoa. do all kinds of promotion about it, and... <laughs> Get it, see if I could get Mickey Lee to get me in the newspaper. And this time I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to stick it on Facebook for a day. And if people want it, they're going to get it. I'm, I'm very lazy. I don't sell my You're CDs. You're not lazy. I don't sell my you CDs. work every day. I don't, well, I'm, la- I'm not lazy about gigging. I mean, yeah. I gig a lot, but I give my music away now. I don't really sell my CDs. Um, so, anyways, that was the last project I did. And that was done the very way I explained it. I 
I pre-produce it, send it to Jesse, and and he knocks all my my tracks off. And this was released when? This past July or June. Okay, so really yeah. recent. Yeah. It's interesting because of the three, of the three CDs you have on CD Baby, this is sort of the simplest cover. So you'd almost expect that this would the be the cover was earliest. funny. There was this girl from Australia, so I met this. Um, a friend of mine named uh, Chris Cardillo He's a fantastic producer and engineer And singer-songwriter Out of, um, out of uh, New York, Brooklyn And he was working at this tech company And he had this girl that did a little you know, piece of art For one of his digital releases And I was like, I want, I want that artist to do my cover And he's like, okay, I'll hook you up So she started working on the project And she made a little man you know, That was supposed to be me And I just... <laughs> I wanted it to be more cartoony, and it was very realistic looking. And so I asked her to, you know, could you change the man to a cartoon? I think she took offense that her artwork. <laughs> no, I was, I paid her. I, pay, I asked her how much she wanted, and I paid her the money. And so after a while, she just stopped responding, and I was left with half a CD cover. And I was like, so I'd respond to her on Facebook, nothing. I offered her more money, nothing. I think I ended up paying her like, I don't know. 500 bucks for a stick figure but but <laughs> but she didn't finish it and it was really weird because if you look at the cover the drum set <laughs> she put the hi-hat right in the middle which is fine i mean she that, most people don't know where a hi-hat goes but i kind of wanted the hi-hat to the to, you know to the uh, the side of the snare and so i was stuck with this really weird looking drum kit and so i had my buddy kind of digitally remove the the top and it was it just became such a fiasco to fix a freaking symbol. And it's so stupid. And so I, I finished the, the drum. He put the symbol on and I posted it on Facebook. And of course, the first comment I get is, huh, that's an interesting drum. <laughs> jackass from town. So anyways, that's the cover. It's very simple and stupid. I like it, though. And I like that it has a story, too. No, oh, totally. I mean, there used to be a little man in it. And yeah, it, it, that girl. So I don't even know. I, I think I listed her as Sarah because I didn't want. I didn't know if she didn't want her name on there. Okay. So. Well, we can link her from the podcast. I guess. Uh, you know what? I, I'm still I'm still irritated with her. So so she claimed through a friend she wouldn't respond to me. She only responded to my friend who set her up that her computer had been stolen, and she was too embarrassed. And I'm like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. It's <laughs> a stick finger. Redraw it. <laughs> Artists, man. Yeah, whatever. Anyways, so well, I got I got to say too that I'm. Um, you're a pretty unique individual, Johnny Helm, and, and uh, you know, if somebody got a text from you and said, you're such a hooker, then they would be offended. But when you send it to me, I know that it's a term of endearment. Did I call you a hooker? You've, yeah, you've called me lots of wonderful things. Oh, that, okay. I didn't that know I called you a hooker. That cracked me up. Well, it was, it was said in a loving way. Oh, okay. Thank you. I think it was after I did something cool, so I knew that it was a positive thing. Oh, good. Wait, wait, well, you else? always do cool things. Hold on. Let's find, let's find another recent one. Um, uh, my sweet pickle. Yeah, I do. Yeah, that, that sounds. That's a good one. My sweet pickle. I like that one. Um, this will be fun. I'm gonna go back in my Johnny Helm archive and find all the amazing names that you've given me. So oh. maybe she's. Maybe you're just misunderstood. I also send inappropriate pictures to people of my body parts. But do you really? Yeah, not, never with my face in it. But usually <laughs> there's some sort of disgusting body part in the picture. I'm, I haven't gotten those yet. Mm. Oh yeah, actually, here's a picture of me sending you a sign that says "Hooker" from <laughs> San Francisco at Specs <laughs> because. Oh, and also you replied that you have never accepted money for sex. So oh, that's good you. to know. I'm glad, yeah. Um, where were we? Oh, yeah, so we were talking about your the, your record. So for you, that was released just this year. So just this year. That's, fi- that's five-year gap in between. Is that kind of the schedule that you're on? It or? looks like it. Well, I, did, I think my first one was in like 
99-ish was like that. T- I did release like a uh, a nine-song demo that I did tape. And then a couple years later, I released a, a record called At Random. And in, in the, the nine-song demo is not available in CD Baby. Is that something that you're not making available? No, I probably should. You know, I, one of the things I was thinking about recently is I listened back to old recordings and it makes me cringe a little bit because I was still searching. I think I'm always searching for myself, but I think in the beginnings... The very first recording, the demos, I was more myself than I was halfway through from where I am now. I think I didn't think whatever I had was good enough, so I had to change myself to make it better. Mm. And part of that was common pitfall um, finding my voice. And I think I, you know, I tried singing different ways. I tried adding raspiness and tried this and that and the other thing. And I listened back to some of those recordings, and it really makes me cringe because I could I could hear me trying to be something that I wasn't. Yeah. And but now that it's all done, I feel like I should release it because that was my journey, and that's that that is part of who I am. Was all those recordings that I did that I don't like? That's really interesting because it's the it's the inauthenticity that is the red flag for listeners, right? Like when you hear somebody that is not being genuine, mm-hmm. then you you dismiss it. But the, that whole like that that period of you wavering is authentic to your experience so totally authentic i mean that's sort of interesting in that i way. think in and some people bought it and some i'm sure some people were like this guy sounds corny you know and maybe they still think i do but i think i'm getting closer and closer to the real me as i go further and further um in recording um, well, you're really a remarkable person in that when you come see johnny helm <laughs> I don't know what you're going to say next. <laughs> Isn't it exciting? Uh, but when you come see Johnny Helm, you see this guy who's usually fairly underdressed. With, sometimes with no clothes. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not that we're not that fortunate. So, you know, just fairly unassuming, um playing, you know, a pretty pretty common-looking guitar with fairly um straightforward chord, not straightforward chord progressions, but, you know, straightforward voicings and strumming patterns with, you know, a voice that is kind of, um, <clears throat> you know, not doing a lot of trickery, you know, you're not like playing a lot of riffs and you're not, you know, pushing your range and you're not um, shoving stuff down our throats. It's, it's very, it's very, it's very comfortable in a way, but, th- but there's something about you. You've got this magical factor where you just, the second you hear Johnny Helm, you just fucking fall in love with Johnny Helm. Like what? And, and you try to figure out like what is it about this guy that is? In love with me. It's true. It's Are true. But what is it about this guy that's so endearing? Like you don't have any of those sort of I don't know the like the those indicators of or not indicators, but you don't you don't have any of these tricks. It's all just super real and genuine and present and focused and and you can't help but love it no matter who you are. I I thank you for the compliment. That's a very sweet compliment. I don't know that that, that everybody feels that way. First of all, but thank you. Um, I, you know, somebody recently called my guitar playing very meat and potatoes, and I actually took it as a compliment because that's I it, agree with that. It I'm not a tricky guitar player at all. Um, I definitely have a my rhythm has. I mean, I've been playing the guitar every day. To, you know every night for so long that my, my rhythm playing has a sound to it. And I definitely, even though it's simple and, and meat and potatoesy, it's a little bit unique. And it, I, 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 I took it as a compliment when he said it, I didn't take offense to it, but I thought it was a very accurate description of my guitar playing. It, it works for me. 
I don't think it would work in very many settings. Like if, if I was in a band, if I tried to play the way I play solo, you know, for anybody that's true, but it, it's, there's too much going on there, even though it's simple and it, it would end up um, just, you know, the drums and the bass and everything wouldn't work together. I think the, the one thing that's, that is a little out of the ordinary is the percussiveness of it, how you well, that, use I your think palm. That's what I'm talking. Yeah. Yeah. The palm hit, it, it was an accident. It wasn't anything that, that I did on purpose. Um, like I wasn't consciously doing it, but now it's part of the thing. And I actually have to consciously t tone it back because sometimes mm -hmm. I don't even realize I'm beating the shit out of my guitar. Mm -hmm. And my, my, I have to carry extra 56s in my bag because I, every three gigs, it's like clockwork. Bang. That's your E string. My E string goes. And it's because the way I, I play the guitar, I'm constantly hitting on that top portion of the pickup in that string. It just beats it down and snaps it. Um, so, you know, to some people that, you know, that are, you know, classically trained, they're probably like, this guy's an idiot. You shouldn't be breaking your strings every, you know, gig. This is a bad way to play, but it works. And I've been doing it for every night for this way. For When you enough. break your heaviest string, does it take you totally out of tune right away or? No, usually I can finish the song. Yeah. And then I just, and I'm, I've gotten pretty good at, I, they're right next to me. So I know it's going to happen. So I just yeah. slap it out and fix it. I, I used to try to have it, you know. Sometimes I'll go in and sand my um, my saddle down a little bit because it might get a little burr on there to snap it. But <clears throat> it's going to happen every three to four gigs, so I just I'm used to it. Yeah. So your all of your uh, gigs are on JohnnyHelm.com. They are. Are they? And you keep that up to date? I do. I, I switch things up a little bit. I was having you know Waikiki and you know when you play the gigs that I play, it, there you you end up getting a variety of people. You never know what you're going to get, so you you got to look at the crowd. Um, and see who's in it and, and try to guess somehow what they want to hear or what they're responding well to. And sometimes you get people that drink too much in a crowd and they become super obnoxious. And, and, and I, I, over the years, have lost patience with people that are drunk and in my face. And I no longer... <laughs> can remain uh, quiet. So I've removed myself from most gigs where people get that drunk or can get that drunk. And I've really tried to push my gigs down to more of dinner, dinner hour stuff where people still can listen, enjoy it, but they're not getting nuts. So I'm not a guy that you're going to find in a bar anymore. So tonight you're going to be at Tiki's Grill from 4.30 to 6.30. Yeah. So that, there's that sort of pre-dinner. Pre-dinner. People can still drink and have a good time and they get, some people get a little rowdy, but it's not like in my, like there was a particular gig where a guy got in my, fa in my face. I mean like right there clapping and I, and I, and, you know, I didn't react professionally. Let's put it that way. And I said to myself, that I'm not going to put myself in those situations anymore where yeah. that can happen. So I removed myself. So this year I left a couple gigs and really tried to focus on getting gigs that are dinnertime uh, gigs. And so, yes, my schedule's up on my website, johnnyhelm.com. It's usually up to date. If you want to send me an email to make sure I'm going to be at my gig that night, for some reason, sometimes things change and I go on vacation, send me an email if you're c concerned that I won't be there and I'll respond usually immediately because it's on my phone. And you have a pretty reliable stable of subs that you can call to come sit in for you. When I you don't have to. to. Most of my gigs are through, the, you know, most Waikiki gigs that I do are through the booking agents, which control most of Waikiki. Are you using 
a booking agent exclusively or just No, whoever? usually the, ho- the restaurant hires me and then I have to go through their booking agent. That's oh, just how it works. They and carry does, the insurance. Does the, does, oh, so the booking agent carries insurance? Yeah. So they actually do add value. They're not just taking a cut. No, they, I mean, you know, it's, it's hard to say. I, you know, I don't really know how much booking agents are taking a cut these days, but it, from the beginning, the, pr- the price range that people are getting paid in Waikiki, people can say they're getting paid more or less, whatever. I kind of know what the ballpark is. And I think it's too low. I think it does need to be increased. Um, and I, I've been working on pushing for better pay um, for the gigs because I think they're about, I, you know, I don't know. I think people were getting paid a lot more in Waikiki back in the day. And I think it's gotten way too low. Well, I think that, you know, what's with inflation too, I bet the rate is probably the same. It's just that, you know, $1995 is half of $2017 or $2018. So, you know. Uh, yeah. I, so, Tiki's, I will say this Tiki's has been treated me like gold from the very beginning. Their owners, their staff, all the restaurants I played have treated me like gold. But Tiki's, especially, was the first real gig that I had that I was getting paid. And they have treated me like absolute gold. It's a great place to go. And it's probably my number one suggestion if people want to go see me play. That's probably the best place. Nice. And you're at Hard Rock Cafe tomorrow morning for breakfast. So you have a breakfast gig. I have a breakfast gig. That's a very interesting one. Uh, we have another musician entering the house right now, Jeffrey Klotzel. You can come in. It's okay. You don't have to be quiet. He's wonderful. Hey, Jeff. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that gig is very interesting. And um, it's real mellow. You get served like immediately you sit down you order your eggs bacon waffles you know whatever they have and they bring your food out it's so good and so quick so if you want a good place to go have breakfast and you don't want to wait in line for a million days and get served pretty quick hard rock cafe they had that nice um, balcony area too that's that's where they serve it yeah it's fantastic and uh in my experience i've played hard rock probably only half a dozen times but every time i've been there the person working sound has been very engaged and very interested in making us sound good and making sure, sure that we're cared after. Um, it's, we we it's, don't use the sound system for the breakfast. I no. Do, I just bring a Fishman, little Fishman acoustic amp, and I play through that. And so y- your vocals and your guitar Everything through comes the same in. It's plenty. Yeah. Yeah. I know that they're very sensitive about volume level, um, but they do have good monitors and, and a decent back line. Although the last time I was there, I think the bass amp was broken. But... Um, yeah, if we could get them to pay scale, that could be a really good a good spot. And then, um, and then that night you play again at Tommy Bahamas, which is your Sunday Monday gig. So That's you have you have basically your current schedule. You have one day off. You're off on Tuesdays. For now, yeah, because I'm going back to Cheesecake Factory. I was I took that off for January just because my stepdaughters were home and I just wanted some time to hang with the family. But I'll I'll put that back up on the schedule coming February. And then um, Tuesdays, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. If I'm just going to leave it off or if I'm going to fill it, I'm not sure right now. I think seven is usually what I like to keep. I don't usually like doing doubles, but since Sunday, I do the gig so early in the morning and I have a nice gap. Then so it, you come home and yeah, and chill out and go back. And go back. Um, yeah, otherwise, I get bur- I don't I don't like to play music if I'm playing for five hours straight because it's a double. There's no I have no enjoyment in it anymore. Yeah. So if I'm doing it for like you know three hours, I'm good. I know it's a show. It's a little little gig, and people that want to listen listen, and people that are just there to eat food and talk with their friends. There are there's no pressure to listen to me. I like those gigs. Yeah. That's very cool. So yeah, and. <clears throat> 
Um, yeah, that's it. So you talked about your your nine song demo that you did originally. Mm-hmm. Um, that was you said it was ninety nine. Ninety nine ish. Yeah, and then between ninety nine and two thousand twelve, when Banyan Tree came out, what oh, we had divide. I had a uh, record called At Random that was produced by Rockwell Fukino. And then... Um, which was after your nine-song demo, which was, was self-titled. Self-titled. Then I did a single of a song called Breathe, which Breathe got played on Star 101.9 for a while, in, right around the time Jack Johnson came out. And I think maybe the, the program director thought that maybe I might hit. And so he gave it a shot, and I think it was for about a month. They played Breathe. And, and how did he get it? How did you get it to them? How did you get it on air? There was a, my roommate at the time was named Melissa, and she was Melissa, Melissa Uchida. She was um, on the 98.5 with Lanai and Augie. And she turned him on to my music, and he started playing it like the next day. It was really weird, because usually program directors don't, do not play local music on, on the pop stations, at least. And so, and looking back on it now, I really wish my vocal was better, because I listen to it now, and the vocal makes me cringe. It's just pitchy and not strong and at the time I had no idea no self-awareness of whether or not it was pitchy it just seemed fine to me and um, I don't think it would have made any difference in terms of popularity of the song and the song didn't succeed um, I think they were testing it and it just people didn't bite so it eventually got pulled off how did they measure that I think at the time Clear Channel was had a room of callers and they were I think I'm not sure exactly how it worked, but they literally had a room where they had probably, you know, five or six kids calling people up and playing music for them, testing, radio testing. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Have you ever received a call like that? Never. Huh. But that was, and I don't know if they still do it, but that was a... And they're calling people of a specific demographic, like they know who they're calling, or is it uh, just... I don't know. I, you know, I wasn't that familiar with it. I just remember looking into the room. It might have even been, we might have even had one at New Wave at the time. I don't remember... Um, I was production director then, I think. Um, but yeah, they were doing things like testing music on people. What was the time span between uh, your self-titled, I guess, debut, we can call it, mm-hmm. right? And At Random? Probably three years, maybe. Okay. And then after At Random, you did single for Breathe. What I was your s- next full length after the At Random? Um, uh, then right after that, we started recording right away for Divide. It. John Cruz was going to produce it, and we had been recording at Studio Kahala with um, Uncle Artie, who passed away this past year. Um, and yeah, uh, we we tracked like five or six songs, and then I I decided that it was time for me to to move on. And I I didn't want to leave Hawaii, but at the same time, I felt like I needed to for uh, partially for music and partially for family. My 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 uh, my folks, and uh, it just didn't work. You know, I moved over there, and it didn't work, so I ended up finishing Divide. It was partially recorded at Studio Kahala and partially recorded on my computer. And in at this point, you'd been in Hawaii for about 15 years before you headed back to the East Coast? I think I moved here originally in 90... Th- well, no, I moved here in a complete, like, lived here in 96. I came to school here in 93 and lived here for a little bit then, too, and in 91 also. So, I mean, realistically, I'd only been here for when I moved for as a resident for seven years, although I'd been here much before that. Mm-hmm. But, um, so yeah, seven years maybe. And Divide is also available on CD Baby, I saw. It is. It makes me cringe, but you can get it. <laughs> I like the fact that uh, within the, um, the album notes, there's kind of a, a little biography of you there. And then I think on another one, maybe it's on 
banyan tree. It goes into a little bit more detail with like the last paragraphs are different because time had passed. Yeah. Um, well, actually, you know, and there's a project in between banyan tree and divide. I had met a guy named Jed Lieber, whose father was uh, Jer- Jerry Lieber, Lieber and Stoller, and they were oh, the, wow. they were the writing team um, for a lot of the music that came out of the '60s and uh, especially Elvis. And I was playing at Tiki's, and a, and a guy came in, and he was uh, watching me play, and he was, like, really attentive. And I was like, hmm, this guy's either got a crush on me or he likes my music. And I'm thinking he must have a crush on me because no one likes my music. So I went up to him afterwards and said that, and he started laughing. He's like, no, I like your music. And he, he was the drummer for John Oates' band from Hall & Oates. And he's like, you know, he, he was interested in, in what I was up to and my playing, so we became friends, and I said to him my music, and he's like, you know what? I want to introduce you to this guy named Jed Lieber. He owns a studio out in in Los Angeles, California, called Nightbird Recording Studios. It's in the Sunset Marquee, and Jed used to play with Jeff Beck, and he's got you know really good ideas. He's a great writer. I want you to meet him. So I flew over and met him, and we did ten tunes over like I don't know five years, fully produced, and it never got released. So where are those tunes now? They're just sitting on a hard drive somewhere. <clears throat> Somewhere? Do you know where? No, I don't have them. He has them. He's got them. Yeah, I'm still friends with him. It wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, you know, the, the thing about that project is normally I think I think I thought that was going to be my ticket to the next phase, whatever it was going to be. I didn't know how big or little it was going to be, but uh, so I would took. We probably I flew to Aspen, Colorado, to a studio there called Great Divide. We recorded at Nightbird in Los Angeles the original demos. Then we recorded at. Um, at the cave in Malibu, which um, was more of a mixing studio. Um, but you don't need a lot of space to do your stuff. I mean, you're no, but compact, th- th- yeah. this was really, this wasn't just my stuff. It was more of a band. It was so Jed's a monster piano player and a great songwriter. And John's this monster drummer. And um, so, yeah, there was like these, it was a full production, but we, we didn't have a bass player, and Jed just laid in the bass with the piano. So it was really just a piano, guitar, and, and drums in it. It was a really interesting, simple, stripped-down, I want to say kind of stonesy, kind of folksy, kind of, I don't know. It had a bunch of different things, and it, it just never quite solidified for several reasons. And then Jed's father passed away. And so he ended up having to deal with a lot of things on his end, and it just kind of got... I'm out here. I, w- I wasn't over there. I couldn't fly over all the time to, to make it happen, and it never really happened. But what I did learn from this thing is I, I, my, my writing wasn't complete, and Jed really kind of made me aware of it. And he kind of put me through a writing boot camp in some ways. And although I think my creative writing was really... I, I liked it, and I thought it was good, I felt like my... Like the storylines didn't match up in my in my songs. There was a lot of really cool imagery, maybe, but they didn't line up into a uh, something that made sense as a whole. And he really helped me fine tune my writing. And he didn't do it on purpose. All he did was write with me, mm-hmm. and we did a lot of co-writing. But I watched him work, and I was like, and it really has, you know, I think, lifted my writing to a to a better level. So he's helping you establish kind of a story arc, kind of a beginning, middle, end. He's a very complete writer. Yeah. yeah, almost to a fault. I mean, he's so he's a very, very smart man, and well read, and he's got you know, he's he's an interesting dude. He'd be a great guy to get on a podcast. He's got stories, 
you know, Phil Spector lived in his house as a kid. I know a guy. <clears throat> I know a guy. <clears throat> I know a guy with a silly podcast. So anyways, that was a project that never got released and is sitting there. And we, he, we still talk a lot, you know, and, and threaten to finish it. And one day maybe we will. I don't know. Well, what's left? What, what do you need to do? Probably redo the vocals at this point. I mean, we, we comped the vocals to, uh, like, he's very, he's like militant in the studio. It's a dip, but, there's different kinds of producers, right? But that's have, easy to do once the backing tracks are fully fleshed well, the backing, out, right? I, mean, I mean, the backing tracks are done. I and mean, especially now with all of the hours that you've, you know, all the labor you put into tuning your voice and finding oh, yeah. your voice. I mean, it's Well, like, I can do, I mean. If you flew those tracks to you now, I mean, you've got all these great mics that you've built. and I think, um... It would be nice to have him produce it because he's very good at producing. There's some guys that produce that I've worked with that are very laid back. Um, I, I think John John Cruz is a really cool producer because he lets you be an artist, but he also he knows what the, he knows what he's doing, and he'll pull you in that direction without you even knowing it. Whereas Jed is like he's it, it was like being in. <laughs> I remember being in a closet. We had we had made a makeshift closet at the cave up in Malibu where I was doing a vocal booth, right? And um, uh, I'm I'm, fr- I'm slipping the guy's name that owned the studio right now. It's kind of embarrassing because he did some amazing work, but um, it, it, the, he was coaching me through this vocal, and it was too. It, w- it was a song that he had written with Jeff Beck and, and Cindy Lauper called "Above the Clouds," and I just wasn't getting what he was saying. I was missing half steps here and there because I just I don't I never have been had somebody tell me that I needed to sing a half step down or I just kind of wing it and just sing, sing how I want to sing it. And I like, it was so hot in the studio that the engineer came in to get me to pull me out of there just to like give it a break that he opened up the door and he's like, wow. <laughs> he's like, we need to stop the session right now and give you a break. Cause I was, st- I was so angry. I was like sweating and you know, and that's not the way you want to be recording yeah. and producing. So, you know, you want to kind of space out and be like, Oh, what happened? But with that said, after that experience, it was like a boot camp for me, and it really made me think about what I'm doing while I'm singing rather than just winging it. And I think if you take what Jed does and maybe what John Cruz does and mix them together, you get a really nice um, education in, in, in how to be uh, doing your vocals in the studio. So I've had really great mentors and now I do everything myself. And like you said, I was building, I built, I've been building mics and some of them kits, some of them some some scratch, the scratch ones aren't so good, but the kit mics, um, I'm real, you know, particular about my mics on my vocals. I don't like hearing certain things in my vocals. And for a while I was just using an SM7B, which is a very cheap microphone. And, um, I've gone through U87s, U47s, and I finally have settled in on this kit mic that I built that I used by accident. I, I recently did um, a couple songs for a movie, and the producer for this movie just said, we need these songs quick. And so I had a mic set up on my desk already, and it was the mic I built. And I didn't even think about the mic. I, didn't even cross my mind. I just started recording this thing. And it's a large it. diaphragm condenser. It's a large diaphragm condenser. Yeah, it's an eighty-seven capsule, but it's on which a, is the Neumann classic. But it's it's not you know it's Neumann didn't build it, but it's that kind of capsule. And then the the circuitry for the for the microphone was from a KM I think eighty-four, which is a pencil mic, I believe. And so this guy that built the kit or that made the kit converted 
made a conversion on it so you could use that large condenser capsule. Anyways, I built the mic, was on the desk, started doing this thing, didn't think about the mic, didn't think about the quality, didn't think about the sample rates, didn't worry about any of that crap. I just started recording the thing. And it was probably the best recording I'd ever done. And and it was because I didn't worry about things. Mm-hmm. I had I had all the knowledge that I had. And I've asked a lot of questions of a lot of engineers, engineers here in Milan, Bertosa um, was the main one. But I've asked tons of questions. And, you know, even though I've been doing the engineering for 20 years, I still ask questions. And, I, and this one, I didn't think about it. I just had to do it. Didn't think about the mic. And it just came out. Um, it's the best vocal I've done. So I've been sticking with that microphone. But the cool thing was they accepted the songs. Nice. So I had two songs put into a little movie that comes out in the spring. The movie's called Ride, starring the rapper Ludacris. And uh, the songs aren't really typically what I would do for my records. They're a little bit more... I almost, I almost feel like they're a little bit more rock. Almost kind of sounding like they would have come out of 2000 era. Um, one of them... One of them sounds kind of almost, I don't know, I can't put my finger on it. They're more rock than what I do. Where my stuff leans a little bit more folky, country-ish, these are definitely more rock. And so, um, yeah, those two songs will be... And then what is the instrumentation on those? So I ended up doing... um, I had Salam Tillman come in for the drums on on the first one. Playing a full kit. Full kit, but we mic'd it in here. And the song that, that... or the music that they were giving me as a reference was very trashy sounding almost. It was um, in in that the it wasn't a close mic kit. They wanted it like a really almost like a garage band sound. And so I put I mic'd the kit close, but then I put up mics all over the house. I put one in in my studio, the the control room, and one in the living room. And I really just used those two mics for the song. And then the rest of it was bass, uh, electric guitar with a lot of tremolo and delay are you playing the electric guitar in that yeah i played everything on these two i didn't have time to send it out i just had to get it done so usually i'll use jesse for um for the tracking but on this one i just didn't have time actually he was on the road with lucas nelson and uh promise of the real but i just i probably should have called you <laughs> should have called you to have you come in and do the bass and that's why i'm here today is to remind you yeah. that i live 10 minutes away and so half a guitar will travel so i and i know you'll pay me in one dollar bills i pay did i pay you in one dollar bills last time you did. but i pay i pay i pay <laughs> i pay a standard rate i think no you um, don't i don't what did i pay less i'm sorry god that's so cheesy anyways um what is standard rate now in hawaii would you say oh i don't know i gotta i gotta look it up there's a spreadsheet for that but like, if you were to go through the union, would it be like, if you were tracking one track, would it be 100, 150, 200, 300? Well, I don't know. I have to look it up. I mean, I think, you know, there's there's so many things that go into it. You know, are you paying work dues and pension, and what, what's a residual situation? You Typically, know. what I'm paying is, I should, is what I'm thinking, is 150 per track, per instrument. Well, I think it also depends on how much time and yeah, travel right, right. and cartage and... How so, many instruments you're playing? Leading it back to the to to the song, so, um, yeah. So it was a guitar and some keyboard uh, padding, that kind of thing, and then of which course, you're playing? I played everything on this one. Yeah, um, I've never I've never actually seen you play electric guitar. Really? Yeah, it's pr- it. I'm very uh, a lot of. Th- I have a method. I don't even want to say what it is, but in the studio that I use that. Um, it works, and it's it's most people that uh, that would see it would be like, is that really how you record the electric guitar? And it is, 
and it, it works and it sounds really for me it works for me if it doesn't work for you that's fine but for me it works well i was just i was reading uh, you know in in your um your liner notes there on your CD baby I forget which record it was maybe it was on it was on both of them but just talking about you gigging like doing playing clubs with mm-hmm. your band in southwest massachusetts mm-hmm. with you playing and singing playing electric guitar and i'm just trying to imagine like johnny helm the front man of a rock band with an electric guitar that like, was what a band that looks ca- like. the funny thing is it, it, that was a band called that wasn't southwest massachusetts that should have been in rhode island if, if i'm correct but that was a band called cat on a tin roof and it was a grateful, grateful dead, dead yeah. yeah it was a grateful dead cover band and I was um, the lead guitarist, and I sang. And then another guy named Jeff Nadell played uh, rhythm guitar. Here's the test. Did you play Estimated Profit? We did not play Estimated Profit. Because that's, I mean, you got to be a good guitar player no, to be so able to th- hit all the, those. The point is that I'm getting to is I'm not a lead guitar player, <laughs> and I was in this band. It was freaking, my playing was terrible. and But it's Grateful Dead. Nobody cares. No one did care. <laughs> the band was fun. I mean, we had, we, you could tell we were having a blast. Do you have any recordings of that? They actually, after I left the band because I graduated a little bit before everybody else, and they ended up getting a new guitarist, and they did put out an album. I don't know if you can find it. It's called Cat on a Cat on a Tin Roof, but you know the the guitar, the rhythm guitar player, and the founder of that band is now the president of Electra Records. Oh his, wow! His name is Greg Nadell, and he signed Zach Brown. He signed, I think he signed Sturgill Simpson, um, and he's been involved in quite a few different Wait, bands. Cat in a- Cat on a hot tin roof. No, no, that's that. That's, that's cat on a tin roof. Yeah, cat yeah. on a tin roof. And I, I believe that was a line in one of the Grateful Dead songs. I'm not a real deadhead, so I don't know. But I, you know, um, we we claimed that we were also an Almond Brothers uh, cover band, but we only played Melissa, so that doesn't <laughs> that doesn't count as a cover band for the Almond Brothers. Not sweet Melissa. Yeah, I, I'm seriously. I don't want to di- disrespect the rest of the band. They were fantastic, but I will say that I was. Freaking terror! I had one lick that I could do. He's gone. That's the song with uh, Kata. Okay, and I was terrible. I don't know. But but we, <laughs> this place called the Bond View Inn, in Point Judith, Rhode Island, every Wednesday would be mobbed. And I'm not. I mean, like if I had that fan base now here in Hawaii, it'd be over. Yeah. I mean, there was people lined up, and it was just because it was a party scene. It wasn't because we were good. Oh yeah. But it was college scene, and like yeah, and. I mean, I mean, love or hate the Grateful Dead, it's always a party. And the, <laughs> and the music really is secondary. It's a reason I to commune, I think. I, I, I would never consider myself a deadhead, but it was the first band that I really got into. And I love them. And I don't why, care. Why did you get into them? What was it about it that attracted you? Well, I think my sisters were into them. So by default, I just landed their album collection, you know, and they were they were much older. And what were you, which albums were you listening to? Skeletons in the Closet, probably, right? Yeah, I started on all the, uh, but I mean, I think Working Man's Dead, American Beauty, those were all like those the first the acoustic ones. ones, yeah? Um, no. Or American Beauty is the acoustic one, right? Um, I don't think they're, I think all of them have full band productions, but, you know, then I started getting into the bootlegs and, and that kind of thing. But I actually like their studio albums. A lot of people criticize their studio albums or they're like, oh, you know, the two true deadheads listen to the freaking bootlegs. I actually love, I love their studio albums, all of them. I think the first album I actually got was my mom had bought me a boom box, which, you know, like one of the <laughs> with two double tape cassettes so you could re- tape things. High speed dubbing was the jam. With man. The high speed du- yeah. The kids today don't and understand. I had, I had a record. It was a double record called Dead Set. Yeah. And, um, that was my that first. Dead Set had like uh, Fire in the Mountain and Franklin's Tower. Yes. And oh, so you like the Grateful Dead? Oh yeah, okay. yeah. So that was my introduction. Then from there, I, I liked it because I could play this stuff. Like as a as a intermediate guitar player, like well, back, I could learn this. Now songs. you can look on the internet, which is amazing. You can get anything. But then you could go to the music store and buy a book, which some of them had. I think they had an anthology of the Grateful Dead. But my mom 
was always so supportive of my music, which I th- I'm, to this day I'm so grateful because she, she, anyways, she just helped me a lot greatly with music. And, she and a singer as well, right? My mom did sing. My grandmother was a singer too. Um, Were they professional singers? Or no, just no, just my, mom, my, my, my grandma played in church, and, but she had a beautiful voice. She was from Italy, and um, she just had this soaring voice from what I remember. I mean, I was pretty young when she died, but I do remember being with her on the balcony in, in church and hearing her sing. And my mom likes to sing. And play piano. Um, and your dad and your grandfather are both musicians. My grandfather played banjo and played, you know, mandolin. Bought me an ukulele when I was a kid. I don't know where that came from to this day. Was that a, was that a professional endeavor for him or something that nope. he just did? No, he was just one of those dudes that liked vaudeville and just mm. like did a lot of stuff. My dad was a really a square dance caller, so he was my first introduction to live performance. I mean, he was a badass. Is there a lot of call for that in New England? He just did it. He was a he was a rare dude. He still is a rare dude. He's ninety three and still living. But Holy. He, yeah, he dances to his. He does whatever he you know whatever he wanted and didn't care what people thought of him. And, you know, I remember as a kid going with him and he'd load up his gear like I'm doing now. And he built his own gear. He built his own speakers, built his own amplifiers. They're called Heath kits back then. Yeah. Yeah. My dad had built a Heath kit TV that we grew up with. And it was like, you know, the, the remote control actually moved a servo. So you would see the, you know, the, the channel thing would actually turn. Oh, wow. You know, it's like, that's, it's like the little rocker button. Yeah. It yeah. was Heath kit. So my dad was kind of a, a, a genius in that way too, building so the stuff that nobody builds anymore. If you're not a robot, right? Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm had the Heath kit in college that he converted later in life to my electric guitar amp. Which, when I started playing, my mom bought me an electric guitar, and it was a uh, Chinese-made, like you know, ripoff of a Fender of some kind. I don't remember, um, but I wanted a, an amplifier, and my friend had like the first, you know, like solid-state ones that were like made by boss and they had distortion and I really wanted one of those. I was like, Oh, that looks so cool. It's black and sleek. I want one. And my dad's like, well, this is what you're getting. And he built me this wooden cabinet with a mesh front Heath kit in the bottom. And at the time I didn't realize how cool it was. Yeah. It's probably tube driven, right? It was tube driven. It was, it got hot. I mean, it was like, it would melt your face off. Yeah. Kind of like you're playing. Yeah. Right. (laughs) My chords, but it was so warm. I remember it being warm and I had it in college, and in my drunken stupor, somehow don't know where it is to this day. So I've been looking at them on eBay, trying to get a hold of one of those things, just so I could put, a, you know, put it in a cabinet like that. And but it was the coolest amplifier that I've ever had, and I, that's one of my big regrets that I don't have that now. Yeah, it's interesting to think about, you know, as a kid, you know, you, you fall in love with like the Jacksons and the Charvels and the Charvettes and then realize that, no, like that jazz master that I learned to play on was the ultimate guitar. Like, it's so funny to think about, you know, it also just like in, in middle school, we had an old uh, a tube like Ampeg um, bass cabinet that I used to play bass with like the jazz band in. And it was this beautiful tube thing. And it, it was like, oh, this thing's old. What a hunk of junk. But no, it was like quality vintage, you know, mm. hand-wired, point-to-point, amazing stuff that you just don't appreciate it as a dumb teenager. And now you do. Yeah. Now you do. Yeah. Well, so I, I don't know where we were, but that's that's my life in a that's my life in a in a nutshell. <laughs> to those that have made it this far in the podcast, God bless you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, you know, some some suckers actually enjoy it. I'm some suckers. Some, some good. Some good. I mean, I feel like there's so much more that we can cover, but um, I think uh, in the interest of time, in the interest of this weed whacker, that's just yeah, the weed whacker coming that, around. That's the only bummer about my. Th- so this, I have this home setup that I really use for myself, and no one else really records here. Um, 
Some people do, but whatever. Anyways, the guy next door decided he's he's probably my guess is fifty between. I would say sixty probably. He picked up the trumpet, in in his sixties, and he blows that thing all day long. That's me in ten years, by the way. Just I've always tr- want to play the trumpet. Just trumpets the shit out of life, <laughs> and I'll be fucking. I'll be doing a. I mean, I'll be doing a, a vocal take, and I'm like, oh my fucking god. So well, you have your ISO booth that's pretty soundproofed. Yeah, no, it doesn't. It doesn't usually affect it. I mean, we're, I'm pretty. If I need to go in the ISO booth, I will. Most of the stuff I record right in front of my computer. But yeah, we do have a weed whacker going on right now. Are they in our yard? Uh, it's kind of over here, the next yard over. Uh, okay. I know for, for those of you that don't live in Hawaii, we don't <laughs> typically have real windows here. We have these little uh, louvers. Yeah, little louvered windows. Louver. That, even when closed, don't really block out much sound. But I guess it's a benefit of using these dynamic mics instead of. Uh, um, anyway, the, the the way that we got to uh, the way that we got to there was just sort of the Grateful Dead, and then you getting the Grateful Dead book, and then using that stuff to. You know what's really weird? I just got a text message from Greg Nadell. The guy that I was mentioning that's president of Electra Records. Nice. And uh, it says, hey, got your message crazed through the weekend. We'll try it next week. Hope it as well. I'm going to tell him, doing podcasts cast, and just talked about Cat in a Tin Roof. <laughs> somebody had uh, given me the book. I can't remember who it was, but I think it was somebody awesome um, about Jack Holtzman in founding Electra Records. And so I got kind of really attached to that label, kind of thinking about Jack Holtzman, you know, sort of like mega music industry mogul cruising around New York City on his little scooter with his, you know, recording apparatus on there to... uh, Oh, are we taking a picture? We're doing a selfie for my buddy. Actually, this is good because then I can use your selfie for the the website. Let's turn it. Yeah. Can you see? Oh. Piece of shit. Come on. How do I take a picture like that? Oh, God. Yeah, you're, you're good I, at that. I, I've got potty mouth. I'm sorry. That's okay. That's allowed. Although, actually, I realized when I put published this thing to iTunes, it said clean on it, and I think maybe I should. Well, you can blurt the, blurt the bad ones out. Yeah, I don't typically want to edit it. Let's just get it out. Hey, can you do, can you do it sideways so we can put it on the website? Yeah, there you go. All right. We'll take a nice shot later. I'll send this to you later. I don't... I mean, in terms of... Anything else that I have to say, by the time this podcast comes out, I'd like to say that I'm going to have a, a website up for the studio, which is called Orange Pear. This is your studio here? Yeah, Orange Pear, because of the giant orange pear in there, and someone named it that. And um, it's gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to try to make a website so that for music licensing, for all the, either people that do record here or myself, there'll be a place with a, uh, a library of all the music that we're doing. Very cool. Yeah. And so we've had, I've had some guys come record up here. It's a unique recording setting. So you have to be willing to deal with trumpet players. I think working with Johnny Helm is, <laughs> yeah. that's the magic of the studio, really. I had John Cruz up here for a little bit. I've had, let's see, John Cruz, Todd Adamski did a lot of work out of here before he passed away. Um, uh, Lance Arillo's come up, um, Jay Keys. Um, a guy named Patrick Kell out of El Paso, Texas. How many sessions are you booking a week here? I really, at first I wanted to book a lot and now I'm kind of leaning back. I'm just doing, I'm doing mostly my own stuff and then if there are people that really, really want to work here, like the guy from El Paso really wanted to do something here. Um, He liked Banyan Tree a lot. Um, There's a girl out of New Zealand that comes out. She's, um, her name's Chanel Davis and I'm working with her on her project. 
if you really want to work here, I'll, I'll do it. It's just a unique setup, and you got to be willing to deal with weed whackers, uh, sweaty, sweaty um, vocal booths, trumpet players. Um, well, it's very comfortable. And it's very beautiful. This this panoramic view. We do have a diamond head. Spot. Look, diamond head to cocoa head is, it's it's breathtaking. Um, it's actually fun um, driving down your driveway this time and not worrying about my. Um, your brakes giving out and going into the next house, yeah. No, it was, it was more of my uh, actually going back up, my my muffler falling off. Oh yeah, I that's if you right. caught that last time I left. No. <laughs> Smack, dingling, dingling, dingling. So um, yeah, I you're gonna need to come and I, I I you're gonna need to come and record here if you don't mind. I'm and, I'm and, down. I'm game. And um, yeah. I guess I, I don't have much else to say. That's I mean, cool. You've well, let me talk about myself for about an hour. That's well, a lot I, find of it, I find it fascinating, and I feel like we'll probably have you back. But um, I appreciate you taking this much time. i got to actually head home and get ready for a gig up in the North Shore. But um, you've been super generous with your time and your knowledge and your wisdom. And, and uh, I think hopefully um, you've inspired some people to take take the leap. I mean, you, you've done it. You've decided to like make a life in music. And... And you've paid your dues and you worked hard and you've done a lot of fine tuning and a lot of soul searching and a lot of uh, experimentation and working outside of your comfort zone. I think anybody that comes and sees you recognizes the mastery, even though it isn't a lot of bells and whistles you bring to the table, you bring that authenticity that people really connect with. And um, it's really sustainable because it's you and, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, a few chords in the truth and your percussive <laughs> rhythm pattern. But uh, that was such a great uh, conclusion to this interview that I hate to say what I'm going to say because I thought I thought we should end it right there. That was so well put together and w well trimmed and perfect. Wow! Thanks. But I want to give a little bit of, of 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 a little bit of something that might. If there is somebody listening, I don't think anybody listening all the way to the end will be that musician. But if you are, well, a lot of people get stuck in traffic, and right. that's that's where a lot of people so consume their podcasts. I guess. You can be a musician and make a living. You don't have to be famous to do it. And I think as soon as I realized that. And let go of worrying about whether I was going to get signed to a record deal or whether people were going to know who I am. When I finally came back around to the reason why I start, which is I enjoy music. I love music. I love playing music. It doesn't really matter if you're going to get signed to a record label or you're going to be famous. You can make a living and be very, very happy playing music, recording music at whatever level you're at. And so... My point is, be, enjoy life, play the music, and you, you can do it. it. You can make a living playing music. Words for the wise from the wise Johnny Helm. Thanks for taking time. I really appreciate it. I thank you for having me, and thank you very, very much for coming up to the house. This is the Johnny Pounds Podcast with Johnny Helm. Delicious. <laughs> Thanks. Johnny Pounds!